Please remain standing for the reading of God's word as revealed by the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, how good it is to be in the Lord's house with you on this day and to welcome you to this Wesley Covenant service. Uh, Especially grateful to all of our musicians. Robert, thank you for being with us this morning. Thanks for bringing your guitar. It came in handy for us, and we're grateful to you. And Ben, where are you, Ben? Thank you so much. Uh, Wonderful to have you back home and to have you singing for us on this uh, particular Sunday and to our multi-generational choir, uh, to all of you for uh, Casey Orr for being with us today. That was not Casey Orr, by the way. That's Laura Brantley. Uh, Casey, please remember Casey in your prayers. She is uh, ill today and we will miss her uh, her presence here, but we're so glad to be uh, with you all in this special day. I, I hope you had a, a Merry Christmas. We're still in the 12 days of Christmas, of course, uh, until Epiphany, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. Uh, we had a house full, uh, many of you did. In fact, on Thursday night, uh, I counted 20 in our home. Uh, the last installment left yesterday, and we've been thanking God ever since uh, <laughs> for an empty nest but it's grateful to see the nest full here uh, this morning. I don't know about you, but today is always a very reflective Sunday, the Sunday after Christmas to me. And it always kind of blows my mind to fathom that, that we're this close to a brand new year. That we're this close to concluding 19 and beginning 2020, which for a boomer like me, that seemed like such a far-off distant thing that perhaps it would never come. And here it is, three days until 2020, a new year, a new decade, and a part of our national heritage as Americans is to make resolutions that may actually cause the coming year to be different than the past, hopefully better than the past. I had one person tell me the other day, uh, Davis, I had such a rough year in 2019 that my goal for 2020 is to get off the prayer list. I thought that was interesting. I was reading the other day, maybe you've seen these, the top 10 uh, resolutions for last year. When we were here last year, getting ready for 19, top 10 were these. Number 10, read more. Number nine, travel more. Number eight, get organized. Seven, quit smoking. Number six, save more money, spend less money. Number five, live life to the fullest. Number four, learn a new skill or a hobby. Number three, get organized. Number two, you know what's coming, lose weight. 
And number one, exercise more. That's the number one, exercise more. That's on my list as well, though I've decided to wait until the 1st of February to start it. (laughs) But I say all that to say to you that this resolution business has a history. In fact, it goes back about 4,000 years, historians tell us, to the Babylonians. For the Babylonian Empire, the new year began in spring, in mid-March, after the new crop was planted. The people would gather together and have a big feast for 12 days. Interesting, we're in the 12 days of Christmas. 12 days of feasting during which they would crown a new king or reconsecrate an old king And all of the people would make promises to pay off their debts, return their borrowed goods to the neighbors, and they believed that in keeping these promises that their gods would favor them in the new year. Resolutions have a history. Fast forward from the Babylonian Empire to Julius Caesar, who actually changed the calendar. He established January 1 as the new year. He named it after Janus, the two-faced Roman god whose spirit inhabited doorways and arches. This mythical Greco-Roman god of passages and transitions, they believed, had the capacity to look forward and backward at the same time. And the Romans, like the Babylonians, believed that if they made sacrifices to their deities and promised good conduct, that they would be favored, blessed in the coming year. In the early church, January was a day, January New Year's was a day of prayer, reflection. It was a time, as we have done, to confess our sins from the past and consider new acts, new deeds, new habits for the future. It's fascinating to me that in our own tradition as Wesleyans, in 1740, there was an Anglican priest named Wesley who created what we're doing today, a covenant renewal service. It was to be held on New Year's Eve. It was an alternative to the raucous celebrations which often would ring in the new year. What I've discovered today is that this resolution business has become much more of a secular practice. In other words, instead of making promises to God, more often we make promises to ourselves, which may explain why our resolutions are so short-lived. While about 45% of us still actually make those resolutions, you know what percentage of us keep them? 6%. That's a 94% failure rate. And it's ironic to me that the text, Shelby, you have read for us from Jeremiah was written in the context of the Babylonian exile in Babylon where this tradition started. It was a day in the life of the Hebrew people where these chosen ones were now feeling a bit unchosen. They had been deported from a promised land and were now in an unpromised land, unsure about the future and ambivalent about their identity and their purpose. They had broken their covenant with God and they were paying a heavy price for it. 
And so Jeremiah, this prophet, they called him the weeping prophet. He was always crying, articulates the ethos of these exiles in chapter 30, which is right before what we just read. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There's no one to uphold your cause. There's no medicine for your wound. There's no healing for you. All your loves have forgotten you. They care nothing about you. For I have dealt the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are numerous, I have done these things to you. That's the ethos of the people. It is a painful look back. When I read that, I wonder what on earth is God saying to the people? What God is saying through Jeremiah is simply this. There are consequences to broken promises. There are ramifications to broken promises. There are unintended consequences to broken resolutions. I I think that's why some of us say, never make a promise you can't keep, right? Well, the truth is, we don't always know if we can keep a promise when we make it. We have to trust. And the best way to learn to trust is to trust. I don't have to tell you that suffering is inevitable. Grief, pain, it's part of the human predicament. And of course, it's not always traceable to God, but it's clear in this text that God doesn't always rescue God's children from the consequences of our sinful choices. Doesn't always rescue us from the ramifications. God forgives sin, to be sure, but God does not ignore sin. If he did, he'd be more of an enabler than a savior. I think maybe that this is the positive part of pain. And there is a positive side of pain. Pain can be a sign that change is necessary. I've discovered that pain can actually sometimes be redemptive. It was C.S. Lewis in his marvelous book called The Problem of Pain who said we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. Listen to this. He said, God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. It is God's megaphone pain to rouse a deaf world. Next door, we're privileged to have Alcoholics Anonymous that meet together 24-7. Every day of the week, there are groups that are there being honest with one another, coming to grips with an addiction, with a difficulty, and they have taught us over the years, AA, that sometimes until you hit bottom, until you hit rock bottom, there is no change. I was reading the other day that there is is actually a rare uh, disease, a rare condition called CIP, that's C-I-P. It's an acronym for congenital insensitivity to pain. It is a dangerous infirmity which actually inhibits our ability to perceive and feel pain. And while that sounds kind of good to me at first, it can be lethal. 
Oh, I know we always say what you don't know won't hurt you, but sometimes what you don't know can actually kill you. And in this disease, when your body becomes oblivious to its own need, it can be lethal. And I've discovered that the same thing can happen spiritually. Perhaps it was happening in Babylon to these exiles. In their grief, as they're looking back in nostalgia and looking ahead in ambivalence, the prophet resets their focus. It's interesting, in chapter 30, the prophet defines reality. You always start with that. But then the prophet resets their focus in hope. He resets their focus, but not on their broken promises to God, but on God's unbroken promises to us. Listen to Jeremiah, which contains God's new resolution. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. It won't be like the covenant made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke that covenant, though I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant I will make with my people. I will put my law on their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the very least to the greatest, from the smallest to the largest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The notion of writing on the heart was not a foreign concept to the Jews. In the surrounding culture of Babylon, there was a practice called extispacy. It's a hard word to pronounce, extispacy, which was simply this. Pagan priests would examine the entrails of a sacrificed ram, searching for some divine etching or mark on the organ of the animal, maybe on the liver, but especially on the heart, to find a revelation from God on the innards of the beast. And Jeremiah has this image in mind when he begins to perceive what God is about to do with us in our hearts. God is getting ready to do something not to a deceased sacrifice, but to a living sacrifice to the heart. That's interesting because Jeremiah speaks so much about the heart, particularly about the stubbornness of the heart, hard-heartedness. Chapter 17, verse 1, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of the heart. But in chapter 31, God is engraving something different on the heart. The other thing to notice here is that Jeremiah is differentiating the new covenant from the old covenant. You remember the old covenant? The Mosaic covenant at Sinai, we call it the Ten Commandments. The Torah, the law, was engraved on stone. That's external. That's laws, that's regulations and rules, but this promise 
is going to be internal. It's engraved not on stone, it's engraved in flesh on the heart. What's the difference? Under the old covenant, God requires. Under the new covenant, God provides. Under the old covenant, God enforces. Under the new covenant, God empowers. The law demands what it cannot give, and grace gives what it demands. This is a matter of the heart. Mr. Wesley referred to it as holiness of heart. He was a priest and an effective priest, an effective preacher for 14 years before his heart was changed. And at the age of 35, on a street called Aldersgate Street, the Spirit of God got a hold of him and inscribed something on his heart. And he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and it changed his entire ministry. That's what happens with God. You begin to live from the inside out. It's not about external. It's about interior. And when the interior is right, the world becomes promising. Now, you see this in our vision statement. All of you know that the mission statement, right, of the church? We're here to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. But we also have a vision statement. Here it is. We are called to shape the heart of the community by creating a culture of agape love formed through relationship with Christ and with our neighbors, with others. We are heart shapers at our best because when Jesus makes an inscription on the heart, life, even in exile, <laughs> becomes promising again. Our son Andrew was in town for a few days this week. He's preaching today, even as I stand here. Uh, this is, by the way, National uh, Associate Preacher Sunday, but I wanted to preach today, and I asked Lauren Shelby, and they said, okay. <laughs> our son Andrew was in town a few days for Christmas, along with our daughter Haley and that boy. Um, <laughs> they're going to get married next year. And Andrew was telling us about a seminar that he and a friend have been doing for young adults, for millennials. This is really interesting. He said, Dad, we're trying to help them find their vocational purpose. We're reading today that millennials will probably have eight to ten jobs in different industries in the world in their lifetime. It won't be like the corporate life that older boomers and silent generation had 40 years with the same company. It's not going to happen. We're trying to help them find their vocational purpose and their vision for life in terms of employing their God-given talents and passions for something meaningful, which is what they want. He said, in the seminar, one of the things that we do after we help them to discover their spiritual gifts and to clarify their skills, we have them stand before the group and introduce themselves five years from now who they will be five years from now. I've, I've often thought about it. One day, I think I'm going to get the nerve to do it. I'm going to write my own eulogy of what I hope will be said 
at the time of my death so that I might actually live into that vision of what God has for me. And so each one, they would stand, and it gave them a chance to imagine and prayerfully envision what they can become rather than only thinking about what we are. It's really, he said, about living into a promise that's already written into their DNA. On Christmas Eve, it seems like a month ago, doesn't it? <laughs> Just a few nights ago, we had a few services here. We were serving communion at one of those services, and I cannot tell you if it was six o'clock or eight o'clock. One of you could tell me. I had concluded my sermon, in case you weren't there, by telling a story about a man last year on Christmas Eve who proposed to his girlfriend, you remember, during silent night, during the passing of the light. And I compared what he did that night to what God has done for us in the incarnation. The incarnation, God in the manger, is, is God's proposal to us of divine love. And I finished the sermon by saying that that kind of proposal demands a personal response from each one of us. And I just left it there hanging and said, amen, with a great thanksgiving. And I was right down here serving communion hundreds of people receiving the bread in the cup, and there was one woman who came up to me who had the biggest smile on her face I've ever seen. I recognized her when I saw her because she's going through chemotherapy right now. And she came, I broke the bread. This is the body of Christ given out of love for you. She dipped it into the cup and she stood in front of me for what seemed like 30 seconds. It's probably five, just smiling joyful. And then she leaned over and whispered in my ear, by the way, pastor, my answer to that proposal you talked about is yes. 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 And I knew that even in her exile, she was living on a promise. It's written on her heart and you can see it in her face. One other word and I'm finished. Some of you know the name Lewis Smeads, who was for many years a professor of theology at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. He wrote several books. In one of them, he talks about the importance of a promise. And this is what he says. Listen to this. Somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promised once to see it through. They hold on to love grown cold. They stay with people who have become pains in the neck. And they still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises they make. I want to say to you that if you have a ship, you will not desert. If you have people, you won't forsake. If you have causes, you will not abandon. Then you are like God. What a marvelous thing a promise is. When a person makes a promise, he reaches out into an unpredictable future, and he makes one thing predictable. He'll be there 
even when being there costs him more than he wants to pay. When a person makes a promise, she stretches herself out into circumstances that nobody can control and controls at least one thing. She'll be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. When a person makes a promise, he stakes a claim on his personal freedom and power. When you make a promise, you take a hand in creating a new future. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus. It's a new future. And so we're not just here to grieve our broken promises. We're here today, three days from 2020, to reclaim God's unbroken promises. He's yet to break the first one so that we may be among those who are standing on the promises of Christ our King through eternal ages. Let his praises ring. Glory in the highest, I will shout and sing. I'm standing on the promises of God. Today, at the dawn of a new year, new decade, we renew our promise to God understanding that what enables me, you, to keep our promises is his promise, which is engraved in your heart. I can see it on your face. May it be so today and every day. In the name of Christ, amen.